and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Another missionary of sorts, this one with a medical wife, was the Reverend Hugh McDermott, who arrived in 1904 not far from where Dr. Fitz was working, though the one seems to have written little about the other. Ella Manuel's story of the man, once described as to Newfoundland what Grenfell has been to Labrador, is based on his 1938 memoir, McDermott of Fortune Bay, as told by himself. Now, McDermott came to Newfoundland not because he was drawn to it, but because he was sent by the Congregational Church in England. He arrived with his head stuffed with stores of fogs, bogs, and dogs, and was agreeably surprised at the balmy summer weather that greeted him. This gave way to some alarm as he discovered the fjords and cliffs of his Fortune Bay parish practice, and the rocky coast without harbour for fifty miles. Had he returned home when his time was up, he might have been forgiven, but he stayed for more than thirty years. A woman who in her youth worked under him as a teacher missionary told me, He was a big man and bluff, with a red face and a quick temper. He'd say to you, Good morning, how is your soul? Wanting an answer. He was hard to get to know. He didn't talk much, but my dear, he was a saint. Nobody knows the good that man did. If he couldn't do what he wanted, McDermott would do the next best thing in a place where nothing had been done to help people for a good many years. He brought out from England a supply of footballs, cricket bats, and tennis rackets. But when he found out that there wasn't a big enough level space for a playing field, not in miles around, he packed the sports equipment away, his heart aching for the children who had no childhood, who went to work before sunup and did a day's work before other children were going to school. One of his favorite memories was distributing a huge crate of dolls from abroad to children who never before had a toy. He learned to adapt himself quickly. On one of his first voyages, when they ran short of food, he was given the only egg, poached. He took one look at the revolting bright red yolk and pitched it overboard, only to learn that hens fed on lobster laid red eggs. He learned not to be disturbed when, in the middle of his evening sermon, the sexton would stand on a chair, take the chimney off the lamp, balance himself on one foot, and strike a match along his raised trouser leg. The matches, very sulfurous, locally called stinkers, would slowly burn while the sexton gazed round the congregation, and when it flared, he'd light the lamp. So the moment he could, McDermott got a lighting plant for the church. In fact, he built the church with the help of a fisherman, good carpenters all, and the things they couldn't make, like windows, cement, and nails, he begged from rich friends. Soon McDermott had a house built for himself, shot his first moose, and sent for his fiancée, an English nurse. As soon as they reached the new house from the wedding, she was called to a maternity case. It was early winter, a calm night, but the men couldn't row the boat fast enough to prevent her from being frozen in halfway across the bay, where poor Mrs. McDermott spent the night sitting in an open boat. At the same time, her new husband was on call in a small vessel becalmed on a pitch-black night. 
She began to drift with the tide, nobody knew where, until cliffs blacker than the night loomed on her bow. They escaped, only to be caught in a high wind and had to make six attempts to get into port in driving snow. Another time McDermott crossing the bay on the ice fell in and with the tide running and a thick overcoat was unable to get out. Luckily two men happened by and managed to rescue him only when he'd lost his mitts and his hands were frozen to the ice. And there was the time his hair froze to the side of a tent and he had to be thawed out before he could rise to breakfast. These were things that often happened to Newfoundlanders, a part of their lives they couldn't avoid, but that an Englishman should choose to run such risks trying to help them they thought a great sacrifice. McDermott built schools and churches. He had had some medical training in England and was listed in Newfoundland as non-professionally trained. Despite that, he was often addressed as Dr. Mack. He attended the sick for miles around, and he fought against disease, dirt, and malnutrition, always with new ideas about what to eat. Then came typhoid, and although the people were mortally afraid of it, they nursed Mrs. Mack through an almost fatal attack, because they simply couldn't do without her help. It was about this time that the McDermott's realized that making do and patching up wasn't enough. They had to break the circle of poverty somehow. It wasn't much use preaching to people with cold feet and empty stomachs. They knew that men who could build their own boats, rig and sail them the world over, could do anything with their hands, and that women who could shear a few puny sheep, card and spin the wool and supply their families with clothing could make anything, given the wherewithal. So, one day when the governor's wife sailed in on the Nonia, along with samples of work done by her countrymen in the Scottish Highlands, McDermott called his people together, got some wool, and before he knew it, was sent off to St. John's with a suitcase full of sweaters. The knitters had no idea what they'd be paid, and neither did he, but he related that, when I gave the payment to the first knitter, her eyes filled with tears. Later I asked her if she was satisfied with the ten dollars, and she said, I don't know how I got home, on my head or on my feet. My bill hasn't made a cent this year, and we hadn't a thing in the house, and now I could buy flour and the other things we needed. Somehow, word got around what the McDermott's were doing, and they were sent from Canada for the summer a weaver with a loom. The loom was set up in the church, and one minute you'd see a woman at the hay, and the next she'd stick her pitchfork in the ground and run to be in time for the weaving class. Women came from other villages by dory, and if the weather was too bad, they'd send the men back with the finished garments and stay for the next lesson. They couldn't afford to buy looms, so they drew a picture of the one they had before it was returned to Canada and copied it. They ended up by making and selling looms to Canada. They wove, knit, hooked rugs, and the men made looms and chairs. I might say that the fabrics from these looms were wonderful. I've had a suit made of Fortune Bay weave that I've been wearing for 16 years, and it still looks new. Some people who came to help in the summer went back with reports on malnutrition, the lack of dental care, the shortage of nurses. Because the McDermott's had helped their people to realize some of their potential, assistance came in. They lived to see a floating medical clinic, visits from American specialists, occasional dentists, and as many nurses as needed. 
But the Macs were fighting pretty tremendous forces, too. They tried to improve the breed of animals, to introduce goats, to get people to grow vegetables. But then the war came. Fishing was neglected by the far more lucrative rum-running from Saint-Pierre. The money came easier, and the people became embittered, their lives coarsened, and they were hard and cynical. After some thirty years in Fortune Bay, McDermott was interviewed by Lady Hope Simpson, wife of one of the government commissioners. As he sat glowering at her, she pumped him for information, noting that the pump is not much used and is terribly rusty and stiffly set in its determination not to be pumped. He was bitterly critical of people in St. John's, who he said knew nothing about the dire poverty in the outports. When Lady Hope Simpson asked if his daughter, who had been sent to England when she was seven years old, would not be a comfort to him and his wife, he replied that they had chosen the lives for themselves, but there was no reason why their daughter should be condemned to it. So it's no wonder that some do not wish to be reminded of him, even years later, for they must have felt the rough edge of his tongue on occasion. Yet he cared for them. Wherever he was, he was wanted somewhere else, to bury the dead, to marry, to hold a church service, or to give medical aid to somebody desperately ill. And so he lived for more than thirty years, another of the small company of men who changed the lives of people in Outport, Newfoundland. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Next week we begin Season 5, Tough Times at Sea, with the story of shipwreck and survival near Bon Bay 200 years ago.